this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Andertons TV, and today I have some musical royalty with me. Um, I'm so pleased to be able to have Marcus Miller uh, in our studio. We've had a very nice lunch. Sure uh, did. Regaled us with uh, stories of uh, growing up and some of the incredible musicians that you've played with. Mm-hmm. Um, but as is always the way in these kind of interviews, it's I think it's always good fun to kind of talk about where you grew up and what it was that sort of you think, you know, moments from your childhood that you can go, yeah, that was they were the moments that made me want to go on this musical crazy journey. Mm. I'm from, um, born in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, my father played the organ in church uh, and the piano, and uh, it was an Episcopal, an African Orthodox okay. Episcopal church, which was actually started by Marcus Garvey. Mm-hmm. It was a West Indian-based Episcopal church. So it was hymns. My father played the pipe organ with the pipes and the stops and the double keyboards and the pedals and all that. So um, it was a very musical family, my father's. All of his sisters were singers. Uh, his cousins were musicians. He actually had a cousin named Winton Kelly, who was a really famous jazz piano player, played with Miles Davis in the late 50s, early 60s, played with Wes Montgomery. So music was like just a normal, regular part of uh, our lives, my younger brother and me. And um, we didn't think much of it. It's just like we assumed that everybody you know, went to church on Sunday, then went to the basement of the church uh, to perform for each other because it's kind of a family church. My father's father was the minister of the right. church. So it was kind of like a very uh, family-oriented thing. And after the services, we'd go downstairs and this aunt would sing for the family, the big family, or, or this uncle would perform for the, for the family. Eventually, I started having to perform for the family. I played clarinet by this time, you know, maybe 10 or 11 years old. I've never been as freaked out and nervous playing for an audience as I was playing for my own family because, you know, it was a high level of musicianship sure. going on in, in the family. Anyway, um, you know, my father was playing piano, so of course he gave uh, my brother and I some basic lessons on piano and actually it got a little bit more serious. But I mean, having your father teach you is like an intense thing, you know, because he's <laughs> like, come on, man, you got to get this, you know, because for him it was just like walking, you know yeah. what I mean? I'm going like... For example, he said, uh, okay, three, four times. It's one, two, three, one, two. So I said, okay, I got it, Dad. One, two, three, one, two, three, uh, one. <laughs> I kept putting that funky uh in the middle of it. So it was actually being four, four, you know. Yeah. I was only counting up to three. He's like pulling his hair out. But um, it, it was good. It was, you know, it was a part of life. Um, we moved to Queens, which is only about 20, 30 minutes from, from Brooklyn when I was 10. And at that same time, Michael Jackson and his brothers hit the scene. Right. right. And we were like, whoa, who are these kids? You know, Michael was 10. His brother Jermaine was 14 or something like that. You know what I mean? And, and I was like, I don't know, man. I didn't know that you could be a professional at that age. You know, I knew music was cool, but I didn't know it was like that cool. You know, cause these guys <laughs> were like incredible. They were so talented. And the music behind them was done by the famous Motown musicians. So yeah. everything about it was cool. And I decided I really want to get a little bit more serious about this music thing. So um, a friend of mine got a bass guitar. I was about to Christmas. say, so you're still playing clarinet at this still time, Still playing right? clarinet, man. Can't find a way in. No, the clarinet. not many big There's clarinet no entrance. and Jackson you know? 5 stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
a friend of mine got a bass guitar for Christmas. He lived just in the same building as I did. And uh, I ended up visiting him like all the time, playing his bass and eventually convinced my mom to let me uh, get one myself. But we're talking like 1972, 1973, yeah. the bass guitar in black music in America was killing. It yeah. was like the center of the music. The drums were still being mic'd, stereo mics, you know what I mean? So they would just like sound like a drum set, not like the music you hear today, you know? Yeah. And the bass was the thing that carried the whole bottom of the music, you know, James Jamerson playing bass. So I started playing the bass lines of James Jamerson. I thought it was Michael's older brother Jermaine playing the bass on all those records because Motown they didn't really list the names of the musicians who were playing on the records. So I'm going, man, Jermaine Jackson, man, he's bad, man. He's 14 <laughs> years old, man, playing all that bass. So I figured that's the, that's the bar, you know what I mean? So I'm practicing. I found out later it, was, it wasn't Jermaine, although on the live gigs it was Jermaine, mm -hmm. you know, singing, doing his steps, you know, and playing the bass. Anyway, it, uh, Jamerson and then um, Larry Graham, mm. you know, all the young bass players in my neighborhood, we heard Larry Graham, and it got to the point where you didn't get any respect unless you could play like that. You know what I mean? And uh, Larry was killing it. Larry had just left Sly and the Family Stone, and he put together his own group called Graham Central Station. And man, they had some bad stuff, man. Any bass player who wants to get into that style, man, check out. It's the, the self-titled album, Graham Central Station. And man, it's killing were you, it. Were you old enough to go and see any of these bands at the time, or is it just uh, stuff you're hearing you, on the you radio? Hope, you hoped maybe they came on Soul Train on Saturday morning, you know what I mean? Because, uh, no, I wasn't old enough to see any of these bands. So it was all records. Yeah. And that whole era, unlike now, that whole era was all about records and your ears, mm. right? It's crazy, man. Today, so many people can play well. They've got facility. They know how to do it. They know, uh, you know the proper position. We don't know any of that. Because we were only working with ears. We, there's no videos. There was no uh, any visual uh, information you could get. It was all audio. So, man, consequently, we didn't have the best technique like they have now. But our ears were completely better than the musicians today because we had to rely yeah. on our ears. You know, we, had to, we were like this with the vinyl. Was there, was there any sense that you, um, if your family were from a very traditional uh, you know, particularly sort of church-going background, was there any tension in the kind of music that you were wanting to listen to, or was it was it all seem you know was it Winton Kelly, my father's cousin, had yeah. already fought that fight. Right, that was all done. Right, you know, what I mean, it was all good. You know, what I mean, lots. You, I mean, I, I understand your question because yeah. lots of times there's tension with church-going families when one of the kids wants to play secular music. You know, what I mean, but uh, no, that wasn't the uh, issue for my family. Although I have friends yeah. who were still going that, probably still going through that right now. Oh, that's a shame. And so, did you drop the clarinet? Because no, you've 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 stayed as a. So because they didn't, bass guitar was invented in the mid fifties. Yeah. There's no courses in 1972 for bass guitar. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, in order to continue my music education, I stayed with the clarinet. I right. went to the art school in in, in Manhattan uh, called the LaGuardia School. Um, if anybody's old enough to have seen the Fame movie, it was it was that school. I went there. My dad had gone there when he was when he was a kid. So, um, and I I used my clarinet as my entry. I took my audition playing Mozart's clarinet concerto, and um, played clarinet all through uh, high school and college. But I played bass on the side, so I was learning 
like music theory and all the kind mm -hmm. of you know how to read music and all that in school, and then I was learning all the other stuff in the street playing in dance bands and all stuff. Was was that your was the was the clarinet your sort of um, gateway into to jazz then? Because I can't think of the clarinet. You know, apart from classical music, I can't really think of a yeah. No, the clarinet for me sort of was pop. straight was straight um, classical. Right. But what happened was. Um, I got into jazz when I was in high school. A gentleman named Kenny Washington, who was my classmate, introduced me to jazz. And uh, it was that one little era in jazz where they were using bass guitars. Yeah. Bass guitar was like the instrument that you used to be contemporary. So Sonny Rollins had an electric bass player named Bob Cranshaw. You know, Herbie Hancock was using electric bass. You know, Miles was using electric bass. So electric bass was really in style, even for jazz. Yeah. So it didn't occur to me that um, the, the bass guitar was an inappropriate instrument for jazz. And then Jaco Pastorius came around and Stanley Clark. So, you know, I just played jazz on the, on the, on the bass guitar. I was doing bebop gigs with the old, old bebop musicians in, in Manhattan. And uh, they look at me funny when I walked in there with the bass guitar, you know. But I figured as long as I'm swinging, you know, they'll, uh, they'll uh, accept what I'm doing, you know. So... That's how that worked. Tell us the story. Um, you had a, another friend at college that went on to be a pretty successful drummer as well. So. Oh, yeah. Well, well, in high school, Omar <laughs> Hakim was, was my classmate, you know. And uh, this dude was so good in high school. You know, I mean, I'd never heard a drummer play a, like he played exactly like he plays now in high school. Now, I know that's not true. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he's better. But to my ears... Which yeah. weren't that sophisticated in high school. He may as well have been tr playing like he plays now. You know what I mean? And he was, uh, he was, uh, he was connected. He was tied in. He knew all the musicians in our area. I knew only the guys in my little kind of couple of blocks area at that time. And Omar, who was from the same neighborhood, it's called Jamaica Queens. He knew all the guys in Jamaica, and he introduced me to guys who are still my lifelong friends. You know these musicians who were like so talented. There's a trumpet player named Tom Brown, piano player Bernard Wright. Donald Blackman, uh, Alvin Flights. It was really an incredible community of musicians right in that era, like the late 70s. And uh, we played jazz, we played funk. You know, if you were only a jazz guy, that was okay. If you're only a funk guy, that was okay. But if you played it all, then you could hang with us, you know. So that was very cool. And Omar was the guy who kind of introduced me to that world. Was that, um, was it pretty obvious then by this time that, that you know, that was the career path that you were going to take or was there still some you know pressure to do other studies and have a backup my parents plan? Like, like were big education parents yeah. and of course they wanted me to get uh, an education get a college degree and that was always my intention you know although very early on I knew I was going to be a musician like from 14 years old which made it a lot easy uh, a lot easier than a lot of kids in high school who are trying to figure out who they are trying to figure out what college they should go to, what's the most appropriate way to go because I don't know what I want to be yet. You know, I, I'm a musician, you know. Mm -hmm. I actually was going to go to the conservatory on clarinet. Mm -hmm. And during that summer before the conservatory, I said, maybe that's not the best idea, you know. I had an afro, I had bell-bottom <laughs> pants and high-heeled shoes. And the classical clarinet, it just just didn't look right. You yeah, know? You'd, have been a, you'd have been standing out in some symphony orchestra somewhere, wouldn't you? <laughs> Trying to audition. <laughs> Hoping they had behind the curtain auditions so they wouldn't like go, oh, okay, that don't look right, you know. But um uh, I think you made the right decision. Yeah, so so um yeah, but but knowing that you're a musician, uh it took a lot of stress out, you know what I mean? Of mm -hmm. um like all those choices. Yeah. But I was gonna go get a music education degree, 
You know what I mean? That way, if music didn't work, I'm still going to stay in music, you know? My dad was a musician. It wasn't, it wasn't that difficult. But, man, um, Lenny White asked me. Lenny White, who's also from Jamaica, Queens. Yeah. Lenny White's a drummer who yeah. played with Chicory and Return to Forever. He's an incredible musician. And he had just left Chicory and Return to Forever and invited me to go on tour with him. And I was in my first year of college. And I was like, man, and my dad's not going to go for this, you know? So I convinced my dad to let me take one semester, a half a year off and go on the road with Lenny White, you know, which was like, it was like for me, like at 17, it was like going to summer camp, you know what I mean? Just traveling in the station wagon from town to town and playing fusion music, you know, with all these notes. Was, <laughs> yeah. was Lenny on school days? I'm trying to think. No, Len, Jerry was... Brown's Stanley's childhood friend, right. uh, played drums on um, school That's days. I know, I know the name from what we were saying earlier. My, yeah, I was my Lenny White, if you listen to um, Chick Corea's uh, and Return Forever, their right. Romantic Warrior album, right. that's probably their most successful album, and that's Lenny White, Stanley Clark, right. Al Demiola, and Chick. So that's kind of like the most famous version of Return to Forever. Just anyway, I kept my line. word. I went out on the road with Lenny for half a year, came back to school, and um, I started getting called for, for recording sessions, you know. Uh, I had done one session for Ralph McDonald, who's a percussionist and he's a producer. And uh, he said, can you read music? I said, yeah. He said, don't, don't BS me, man, because um, I'm about to recommend you on these record dates. You got to read music. I said, man, I play classical clarinet. There's no bass line that they can write that's going to be as difficult as some of these yeah. classical pieces. I play. He says, okay, I'm going to call you. And uh, about a month later, man, I got a call for session for a commercial, you know, like the Jamaica Tourist Board or something like that, <laughs> an ad to come to Jamaica or something like that. And within a month after that first date, I was working five days a week from 9 a.m. in the morning, 9 a.m. in the morning <laughs> <laughs> till like uh, midnight, you know what I mean? Because word of mouth got, got spread and if you're a bass player and you could play like you weren't reading, even though you were reading, there's only like four or five guys in New York who could do that. Will yeah. Lee. Anthony Jackson, Francisco Santeno, Neil Jason. Those were the guys, you know. And there was a lot of music going on in New York City because there was no computers. Nobody was getting away with just putting the bass in the, in the sequence and fixing it, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, man, it was work. So, anyway, um, I ended up not finishing college. Right. Because the work just got crazy. I was in the house band at Saturday Night Live. Yeah. I was playing with David Sanborn. It, it got nuts, you know. So, I said, Dad, if things slow down, I'll go back. You know what I mean? But I got to take advantage of this opportunity. He must have been proud, though, right? I mean, it's oh, like... Yeah. Cause but he was still like a little, you know, because, you know, how many people had a great two years in music? You know what I mean? And then, so I was playing with a singer named Roberta Flack. Mm -hmm. And Roberta Flack at that time was one of the biggest singers, not in the country, in the world. She had a song called First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, which was number Beautiful one song. in yeah. every country in the world <laughs> when it came out in the 70s. Anyway, I was playing with her. We were playing at Radio City Music Hall. And she pulled my father aside. She said, listen, I was a school teacher before I became a singer. Nobody values education more than me. I understand what you want for your son, but he is immensely talented and you have no worries about his career. He's going to be doing well for a very, very long time. And coming from her, yeah. that went a long way with my dad. You know? So um, yeah, I didn't finish college, but, uh, but man, things got hot real quick. So that, that I mean, your CV, your resume is it, it just explodes from there on in doesn't it and you've you know playing producing sessions live I, I mean is there a 
time where you, you know, I, I, what, what are the standout moments for you? And, and is there a time when you just go, sometimes you have to pinch yourself to, um, oh, did this all happen to me? Let's see. Uh, everything felt really natural. The progression, because it was like I was in Roberta Flack's band and Luther Vandross was the background singer. <laughs> he and I got tight and we started making music, you know, so it was all kind of a natural yeah. progression, nothing to freak out over. Um, it was kind of crazy when Luther said, um, after his first hit, Luther said, I just got a call from Clive Davis. He wants me to produce some music for Aretha Franklin. Let's write something. So, you know, we wrote this little tune. It was a trip to turn on the radio and hear Aretha Franklin singing on your track. That was, that was pretty cool. And then um, when I was 21, Miles Davis came out of retirement and he was looking for like a funky bass player and uh, his saxophone player, Bill Evans, recommended me. So just being a studio guy in New York and all of a sudden getting a note that says call Miles and <laughs> an hour later being in the studio with Miles Davis, that's one that I can say, whoa, this is a trip because that really is Miles Davis right over there. You know what I mean? Um, but everything else was just kind of like, I had a really great relationship with David Sanborn, have a great relationship with David Sanborn. He, uh, he was in the Saturday Night Live band with yeah. me. So we started you know, doing gigs together when we weren't working on Saturday night. And uh, I started writing music for him and he started giving me a lot of responsibility writing music. And so uh, I was really too busy to be pinching myself, you know what I mean, for the <laughs> most part. It was just like, you know, hey, we need a song, we need, we need an arrangement, we need bass. And, you know, in New York in those days, man, you had your bass on your case. I'm sorry, you had your bass on your back in the case. And you were just like, I got a session from 9 to 10. I got another session from 11 to 2. Another one from 3 to 7. You know what I mean? It was just like all day. And it was like George Benson, Paul Simon, Elton John, movie score, diaper commercial. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, it was like that for everybody. We were just New York studio musicians. Oh, that's brilliant. Can you remember the, you know, what was the journey that you were on in terms of uh, gear-wise and, and, and also as well, you know, where did your love of, of kind of the production side of things sort of come from? Well, in terms of the bass um, and gear, uh, because I was a studio guy from really early on, the amp wasn't really a high priority. Because by that time in New York, for a long time in New York, in the 60s, every studio had an Ampeg B15. Mm -hmm. And that was like the kind of standard. And the engineer wouldn't even ask you. He would just plug your bass into the B15, mic it, probably take you direct. But by the time I started doing sessions, they had eliminated the B15. They were just taking you direct. You know what I mean? So um, this guy named Roger Sadowski, and he had come to New York from Philadelphia, where he's from. And Roger said, listen... He'd been working on my bases, you know, fret jobs and mm-hmm. stuff like that and doing everybody's bases in New York. And he said, I'm starting to install preamps in some of the guys' bases. I said, what's it for? He said, well, it gives you more control over your sound, particularly if you're going direct. Because if you're just going direct, you're really at the mercy of the engineer. But, you know, you can maybe kind of dial in some stuff and give it to the engineer. So I said, sure, put it in. So he put this preamp in my base. And um, I said, how do you... Uh, how should I set it? He said, well, to start it off, you know, put it here, put it there, you know, a little more bass, a little less treble. I said, cool. Never touched it again. <laughs> Never turned it off. Didn't even occur to me to turn it off, you know. And that was the extent of my, my gear for like 15, 20 he, years. He started making his own basses, didn't he? So, so did, yeah, I mean, people, people well? were calling Roger saying, man, what did you do to Marcus's bass? And Roger's like, why am I 
sending all this business away. Roger started making his own basses, right. and he makes really, really good basses. Yeah. You know what I mean? So in terms of gear, that was it. When I was playing live, it was kind of like whatever I got behind me, you know, as long as it's loud enough for me to hear. Because we were doing big, big places, you yeah. know, and I think a lot of young bass players don't realize that uh, if you're playing a big pl place, the audience is not hearing your amp. The audience is hearing the big, yeah. humongous speakers on the side of the stage, and the amp is just for you and the musicians in your immediate area to hear you. So um, whatever, whatever was back there was cool, you know, <laughs> and... Um, it was like that for a while. I was playing with Miles. I played with David Sanborn, did gigs with Luther Vandross. But I wasn't doing a whole lot of live gigs right. because I was in the studio. What happened was I was writing music for guys like Luther and David Sanborn and Miles Davis. And they started inviting me to the mix. And they said, look, you wrote it, you arranged it. Come to the mix to make sure this thing comes out the way it's supposed to. And from that point, the next time they said, hey, we need you to produce. You know? right. So it was a very natural progression. I ended up producing David Sanborn co-producing with Luther Vandross, helping him put his records together, and the Miles stuff, co-producing with Tommy LaPuma. And to me, there was not much difference. It was just like, you, you wrote the song, you played the instruments, you're helping to mix it, you know. Okay, well, why don't you start like giving your opinion earlier on in the process, yeah. you know what I mean, then at the mix. So that's how I got into the producing thing. Have you, and, have uh, you enjoyed the way production methods have changed over the last you know 25 years or so or do you do you sort of hark back to also know, it's positives of... positives and negatives you know like you'd have uh you know i remember a couple of sessions man with luther vandross where we're playing me yogi horton on drums doc powell on the guitar and nat adley over there on the piano and luther behind the microphone baffle and we're just playing and it's just like you could just feel us yeah. operating as one mechanism. You know what I mean? Like, oh man, I think we found it. You know what I mean? I think we got it right here. And then one time Luther even said, keep it right there, keep it right there. He's talking to us. People think he's talking to his girlfriend or something like that. No, he's, <laughs> he's telling us, man, we got this groove, you know? And then he didn't, he didn't mute the mic for the mix. He left it in there and it's, it sounds beautiful. But the point I'm making is that, man, just coming up on something together mm -hmm. where, you know, Luther sang something and Doc would play a little filling and I'd drop something in there, you know, all together. There's no feeling like that. So when we started adding instruments in separately, you know, when the technology allows you to do the drums, the drum machine, and then have somebody add stuff, you lost a little something, yeah. you know. On the other hand, you know, um, sometimes we couldn't find it, you know what I mean? Sometimes the song, you know, the song started off right and then we lost it, you know. Now with sampling, it's just be like, hey, take those four bars that y'all started with and loop it and you'll have a good feeling throughout the song. Um, you couldn't get a funky record back in the day without a funky drummer. Not everybody had access to a funky drummer or a funky bass player. So consequently, there's only a few places where you could get the real funk, you know? Then all of a sudden, people began to sample stuff. People began to take a Bernard Purdy or a Zigaboo or whoever the funky drummer they, they, they liked, they could sample it. And so everybody had access to the same thing. So it, it kind of took the exclusivity of what could be done because you have a certain talent. It took that away. So that's a positive and a negative. Have you been sampled? Yeah, it? I've been sampled. Um, but I was kind of like... Does it bother you? No, I kind of got onto it. You know what I mean? Right. Like Eric Persing. Eric Persing is the guy behind Spectrasonics. Mm -hmm. Spectrasonics is one of the biggest sampling library companies in the world. And he took me to lunch early 90s he said this is where it's going 
sampling. Keyboard players have access to everything. I want to sample your bass. You, Abe LaBoreal, and John Patitucci. And I'm going, really? Is this going to work? He's gonna, am I, I going to lose work? Yeah. He said, man, if they, if they need you, they need you. There's no sample that can do it, you know? And so I said, let's do it. You know, I played every note on the bass as long as it would ring. Halfway through, I wanted to quit because it's the most boring thing <laughs> ever, right? <laughs> Boom. And he wanted three velocities. So I had to play each note three times with different velocities. I wanted to pull my hair out. Anyway, I got through it, and it was like really tremendously successful sample CD. One of the first ones called Bass Legends. And um, so, man, look, I'm writing music. I'm trying to get a tune finished to send to somebody. Rather than stop what I'm doing and go find my bass and tune it up, I call up DeMarcus Miller Bass Legends. <laughs> I use it myself, you know what I mean? So it's convenient, you know what I mean? And uh, it didn't bother me. I had moved away from doing sessions by that time anyway, right. you know, so... It was cool. So, uh, and what was it when, sorry, at what point was it that you decided you wanted to start doing your own, you know, put your own band together, um, maybe not be the sideman? Miles died. Right. And who are you going to play with after you play with Miles Davis? You know <laughs> That's what I mean? a fair point. Where are you going to go? You know what I mean? So I said, right when he passed, I was like, yeah, I guess it's time for me to, to start doing stuff on my own. You know, so if you hear my first record after he passed, um, you can hear the sounds and the compositional style that I had been using with him. You know what I mean? That I kind of come up with for him. And uh, that was how I got into it. You know? is that, and is that the pinnacle still for you in terms of your ability to play on records? Is it, is it Miles Davis will be the, he'll always go down as, you know, I, I can imagine lots of musicians would probably. Oh yeah, but Miles, but you know, the stuff we did for Luther, I'm equally right. proud of, you know, stuff we've done for David Sanborn, you know, and, Aretha and Shaka Khan, you know, this, but you know, in that realm yeah. of improvisational kind of the lineage of Miles Davis, that's absolutely a, a, a big thing in my life, you know. I can imagine. Um, I mean, we're, we're obviously your career. You know, we talked about. Uh, we've only talked about even just a small number of the artists that you've worked with. It's a, it's a, it is a phenomenal career, big back catalogue of work. But I, I kind of want to jump a little bit further forward in the sense of just sort of going, so, you know, there must be some inner, I don't know, engineer, tinkerer inside yeah. you that's kind of like, I want to know more about how bass guitars and bass amplifiers and speakers and stuff work. And I see you've got your own um, <laughs> pedal with the Rodenberg. So was that always bubbling along underneath or was that something that later in your career you started to take an interest in? Later in the career, because for me... Early on, I was like, all those guys who fool around with, with, with knobs and basses and changing <laughs> basses for every song, it's just a waste of time. You know, it doesn't make them play any better. You know what I mean? I mean, I was, that's probably not completely true, but that's where I was at. You know, and in New York, you know, in L.A., the session musicians, they had cartridge guys. They had right. guys with vans who would take their, whatever they wanted from one studio to the other. And all the studios were on the ground floor, so the cartridge guys would just pull up to the you know, to the door and bring... In New York, you couldn't do that. You know, first of all, the cottage guy would never get out of traffic, and then he'd have to go up to the 33rd floor where the studio was. So consequently, New York studio musicians, you found a bass that could do everything. You found right. one bass that's going to get you through everything you need. So most of the guys carried a Fender Jazz bass. Some carried a Precision, and that was it. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, there weren't that many available like there are today, but still, you carried a bass. You know, I knew that I could 
I could basically get through everything I needed to get through between the technique and, and the bass to pick us. When I started kind of slowing down and thinking about what I've been doing and listening to the sound, that's when I started really starting to pay attention to what was going on. The strings, you know, I started using these uh, uh, DR strings that were really mm -hmm. good for me for a while. And, uh, and Fender made a, a bass model, a bass, you know, like a Marcus Miller yep. model for me. And I started getting into it, and then I fell in with SWR amps. Yep. You know, Steve Robbie. Uh, and that was cool. And then I moved to EBS, which is also a great amp. And then settled in with Mark Bass, you know, who, who blew my mind because I didn't think he could make the kind of amp that I needed. But he really surprised me. And then after the Fender thing, I'd been with Fender for 18 years, and uh, these guys from um, Korea approached me and said, hey, man, we can make a bass that's the same quality as your Fender, but we're only going to charge like four or five hundred dollars. Talking in dollars at the time, I said, "Yeah, right." And then I played the bass. I said, "Whoa, man, this is cool." And then I said, "Oh man, I wonder if if, if this thing had a '60s neck, what it would feel like." I was half talking to myself. Yeah. Next thing I know, they present me with the bass. I said, "Oh, I got to be more <laughs> careful about what I say because these guys are serious," you know. Yeah. And um, you know, what they presented me with was, look, we want you to maybe uh, get behind this bass that can be for students. Because young people, you know, these basses are getting expensive, the quality ones. We want to give kids a bass that, you know, they can start off with and they don't have to switch as soon as the year's over and they finally learn how to, they yeah. finally realize that their bass isn't in tune. You know what I mean? And uh, so I went to Fender and I said, hey, I want to do this little student line. You know what I mean? What do you think? And they go, oh, if you... you know, don't worry about it. We won't even change your contract. Just do it. And about six months later, Fender called me, man, this side bass thing is going to be so much bigger than you think. And you got to make a decision, you know. And I had been with Fender for like 18 years. Yeah. I said, yeah, you know what, I'd like to try something different, you know. So we introduced the sire bass. And man, it went bananas. Like because the quality was so good, you know what I mean. And even people who had a bass that they loved said, I'll buy a sire too, you know. I'll buy, I, I play five string, but I'll buy a four string. I play four string, but I'll buy a five string without making a huge, you know, financial investment. And so many people are calling me up and yeah. saying, thank you. So it's really a phenomenon. Is there anything, you know, as, as the range um, has developed over the last two or three years, are, there, are you, you know, do they regularly send you the sort of, you know, chain? You know, Check this out. Yeah. yeah, all that kind of. Or Check is, this it, out, yeah. is it you saying to them? or you know? A little bit of both. You know what I mean? Like, hey man, can I get one with a, a different pickup spacing? Right. Um, or, you know, can I get one with a different shaped neck? You know what I mean? Uh, you know, this feeling in here. Yeah. You know, it's hard to explain, but it's really important to a bass oh, player. You know, like absolutely. what you feel. So uh, I'll make suggestions and then they'll go, hey man, we got an idea for this bass. PJ, you know yeah. what I mean? Or something else. Check it out. I mean, I certainly know from, you know, I see the number that just Anderton's sells and it's, um, you know, and you're completely right as well. We have bass players that come and they go, I've got this $1,500 bass and there's a little bit of me that goes, I don't, you know, I worry a little bit about taking this out on the road right. or whatever like that. And they pick this up and go, it's just the same. Right. So I worry less about, right. <laughs> about that. Is, the, is the, um, the electronics in there and the pickups, is that... You know, is there stuff in there that kind of harks back to that Sadowski, 
kind of vibe? Is it the same kind of EQ on there or? Well, you know, from that preamp that I had in my bass that Roger put in, um, I played on like hundreds of records, you know, so people got very familiar with that sound and it became like ubiquitous. Like everybody had a preamp in their bass for a while, you know? And so, yeah, if if, if it's going to be a a model with my name on it, it's going to have a preamp in it Mm because I got very well known for that sound. Um, but what's great about this bass is that my buddy and I were talking about it. You flip the preamp off and the thing sounds great. You yes. know what I mean? It sounds like a real passive. Not all basses sound good if they have a preamp in. Lots of times they were created to only be used with the preamp. And when you turn the preamp, you go, oh, there's not really much going on here without the preamp. But um, with this bass, man, it's uh, surprising. You know? So a lot of people are playing it with the switch off. They're a beautiful looking thing. You know, they really, they really, really are. You should, you know, you and the guys at Sire should be super proud of, of what you've done. I can't think of another, um, I can't think of another brand of bass that's come out in the last even 25 years that has been as well received. Well, yeah, it's exciting, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, because of the price, you know what I mean? Because uh, there had been a time when um, nobody was really interested in playing bass, like, you know, because sequences had taken over. And now there's a little bit of a renaissance going on with yeah. people playing bass a lot of a lot of young people are being drawn to the bass now a lot of young girls mm-hmm. are playing bass now it's almost like 50 50 bass guitarists man and you guys yeah you know we'll introduce you yes, to you'll example. see you'll see a, a, another a, you know young sire artist in another video but you're completely yeah. right I mean, so all of a sudden man there's this whole new renaissance well that i think that brings us nicely round to a kind of a you know so here and now and the bass scene and this idea that maybe there is this revival in um, not just you know playing real musical instruments, but also um, doing it in a in a band, getting in the in the room and feeling that kind of magic. So, what, what do you you know? You got you- people, you got companies, man, that are selling experiences now <laughs> for millennials who who are so virtual oriented. You know what I mean? Hey, you know what? Let's take you on a hike. Let's take you uh, on a safari. Let's have you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, you know what I mean? Like real life experiences because people are realizing that there's something missing. Yeah. And I think musicians who are always out in front of things are starting to feel like, hey man, let's get a band together. You know yeah. what I mean? Let's have arguments about yeah. what, what, what we should do in the bridge. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because music, you know, uh, how many groups do you know when they're together, man, they made a certain kind of music that was incredible. And then when the guys split and made their own records, there's something missing, you know yeah. what I mean? There's something very human and incredible about collaboration, you know, and I think that uh, that's coming back. Oh, that's great. And for you personally, what, what's happening for you over the next year or so? I'm on the road, you know, with my band. Uh, I, um, I do a couple of radio shows. I do one here in the UK. I do one in, uh, in the States on Sirius XM. Um, movie scores, you know what I mean? I did a, a movie score about... Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black Supreme Court judge in the U.S. The movie's just called Marshall. Um, so I'm doing stuff like that. I got my hands in a, in a, <laughs> in a bunch of things, man. Well, keep coming up with good ideas on the, uh, the sire front and the Mark Bass. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in. Thank you Thank so you much. much. Please stay watching. I don't know if some of it will be edited into this video or a different one, but Marcus is going to go through the new V10 basses with my colleague Lee, who uh, you'll know from our bass videos. But yeah, it's been an absolute joy having you over. I hope you have a great time whilst you're here. 
Thank you guys for watching. If you like, please subscribe and uh, we shall see you next time. listening to our latest podcast if you enjoyed it hit that subscribe button see you next time 